BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. In the past five weeks, it's become increasingly dangerous to report on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Ukrainian journalists have had to flee their homes while trying to cover the war. And in Russia, the government has cracked down on any reporting that doesn't parrot its official version of events. Today, we wanted to get the view from both sides of the border by talking to two journalists, one Russian and one Ukrainian. In a bit, you'll hear my conversation with Tikhan Zedko, He's the editor-in-chief of TV Rain, which was the last independent television station in Russia before they suspended operations there. Tikhan has left Russia for his own safety. But first, I talked to Olga Tukaryuk. She's an independent Ukrainian journalist and a researcher who's followed Putin's escalating disinformation campaign. Olga and her family left their home in Kyiv not long before Russia's invasion, but they've stayed in the country. I'm in Western Ukraine in a location that I prefer not to disclose due to safety reasons. And I'm actually speaking to you from a basement of a house where I'm staying because, you know, we have sirens quite often. So tell me, what is it like where you are right now on a day-to-day basis? Well, it is difficult to call it normal life, of course, but still uh, this part of Ukraine is safer, relatively safer than other parts of Ukraine. There are uh, sirens and air raid alerts daily and sometimes in the middle of the night. Uh, But still, you know, it's quieter than most of the country. And actually here in the place where I'm staying, we haven't had Russian airstrikes or missile strikes yet. Uh, There were targets uh, hit uh, about 100 kilometers from here. But here it's so far, you know, relatively calm. So the main like a reminder of war, of course, is this uh, alerts and sirens. And also the fact that there are a lot, a lot of internally displaced people. You know, if you go like on the streets uh, of the town, you'll see a lot of cars with different uh, number plates from all regions of Ukraine. And, and, you know, while a part of people is has left, more and more people are arriving. So it's like this constant uh, movement of people uh, transiting through this area, some of them staying, some of them leaving, and new people arriving. And actually, it's almost impossible to find an apartment for rent or even a room for rent. So people are staying at schools, they are staying at gyms. Uh, some local residents, of course, they are sheltering people for free. But, you know, those facilities are running now. They're filling up very quickly. And that's also a reason why a lot of people are, even if they would have, you know, maybe preferred to stay in Ukraine in this relatively calm part of Ukraine, but they can't find a place to stay. That's why they are crossing the border. They are moving west in order, you know, to find maybe a safer, but also just a free place to stay. Right. Do you, what is the mood of the people on the street? If there's more and more coming in this, they're moving through, whether they're moving on or trying to figure out what to do. What is the attitude? Well, uh, you know, for those who fled uh, Kharkiv or, or, you know, Mariupol or other areas that have been heavily bombed by Russia, 
you can see a relief on their faces, obviously. You know, they are relatively safe here, and they are the first also to rush to the bomb shelters when there is a, an air raid alert. If you go to a bomb shelter like in the center of town, you listen to their conversations, and these are people who fled from Kharkiv, who fled from southern Ukraine, from eastern Ukraine, and they are telling their stories, you know, of like how bombs were falling on their houses. And of course, there is a huge feeling of uncertainty for them, you know, many of them, like they don't know like what, what tomorrow will bring. But this is, I think, common for all Ukrainians now. Like we are living by the day. We are, you know, the goal is to survive by the end of this day and hope that nothing happens overnight, that tomorrow we will wake up and somehow normal life will be restored soon. But as for now, you know, it, it's not normal life, obviously. So you're usually based in Kyiv, right? When did you decide to leave? Yes, I lived in Kyiv for uh, 20 years, basically. Wow. I moved there to study at the university and I lived there ever since after I graduated and I worked there as a journalist and I had, I, I got married there, I got my child there uh, and I call Kyiv my home, you know, it's, that's the city I love, that's the city I want to live in, I want to return to. Um, actually, um, me and my family, my husband and my daughter, we left um, a little bit earlier than the Russian full-scale invasion started because of the news that we were receiving. We thought, okay, we'll just go to Western Ukraine on a vacation. You know, we'll stay for a couple of days. And then if everything is calm, we'll return. So now we've been staying here for more than a month and we don't know when we will be able to go back home. And of course, we miss it. And my daughter is already starting a school here in Western Ukraine, online school, because... I thought, you know, I have to give her some sort of resemblance of a normal life. She's not going to meet her um, schoolmates from Kiev anytime soon. So maybe in the meantime, she'll make new friends here. Right. Um, there obviously are two competing narratives of what's going on here. One being broadcast in the West and in Ukraine and one in Russia and China and other places. Explain to people you're a disinformation expert how we got to the world with such different internet. So talk a little bit about that, the difficulty of getting news while you're in Ukraine, the news that the West is getting and the news that's happening in Russia. Well, you know, um, what the Russian state media are doing, this is not news. Well, no. they are broadcasting propaganda as they've been for many years uh, since Russia first invaded Ukraine in 2014. It started constructing the narrative back then about, you know, some kind of mythical Ukrainian Nazis that Russians are fighting first in Donbass. Now they basically say that all Ukrainians are Nazis and they are fighting them on all Ukraine's territory. Uh, these claims, of course, have no basis in, in facts because uh, far-right uh, groups in Ukraine are marginal. You know, they are much less prominent than they are in many EU countries. Or the U.S. We've got lots of them here. Or the U.S. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, you know, it's it's a myth that Russian propaganda was using to justify its aggression against Ukraine starting in 2014. And they are uh, continuing to do it now, adding more and more outrageous uh, lies in an attempt to, to justify the, the war and the invasion that Russia launched without any, you know, action from Ukraine that might in, somehow justify it. So basically, one of major differences between Ukraine and Russia are that uh, Ukraine has free media and Russia doesn't. In Ukraine, we have plenty of 
TV stations broadcasting different points of view. We have a lot of online media, private, public media. Of course, during the war, like you have to be careful, obviously, because uh, the, the government has an interest to, into making the population believe that things are better than they are. I'm, I'm speaking about Ukraine now. So, of course, when we are reading like the news now, especially like the news coming from official sources, I think we should be careful, maybe taking them with a grain of salt here in Ukraine. So they might be, you know, maybe emphasizing successes and not uh, disclosing uh, losses. Can you give me some examples of that? Obviously, the reports of the ghost of Kiev, the rogue pilot and the old fighter jet. Is that useful for the government or is it something that could uh, chip away at trust in the government? Well, you know, it's still not very clear what actually happened. Uh, the story about the ghost of Kiev. There are some doubts, but we are not 100% sure that these are all like false stories. So, you right. know, they might be like partially true. And they might be like these urban legends that, you know, are needed also during the war times in order to boost like people's morale. And people would be like even willing to accept you know, these exaggerated stories because they want to believe these things. So I, I do not see that it could uh, undermine trust in Ukraine's like, government at the moment. I would generally say that the way that the government communicates with Ukrainians is very efficient and most people trust it because the communication is very transparent. And that's also, you know, another like huge difference with Russia because Ukrainian officials are speaking to their citizens on a daily basis. President Zelensky, every day, he records, usually it's at least two videos addressing Ukrainians in which he summarizes uh, latest news and he also like sends messages of like boosting the morale of the people. And the same thing goes for, uh, not just for the president, you know, the Minister of Foreign Affairs is doing the same. And the same goes also for local governors. Right. Talk, talk about some of the other sort of outrageous lies from Russia besides uh, the denazification. Are there others that are popping up that you're seeing? One of uh, the, the most outrageous lies is that uh, Ukrainian armed forces are intentionally bombing their own cities and, you know, their own citizens. This is something that uh, Russia was, uh, you know, spreading about Mariupol. They said that, for example, the uh, maternity hospital, well, later they admitted that Russia bombed it, but they tried to justify it by saying that there were some far-right groups inside and that's why it was bombed. Well, Russians were also spreading, um, you know, lies that, in fact, there were no pregnant women, that those were actors, and that, for example, Mariana, a woman, a pregnant woman, uh, pictured after that bombing of a maternity hospital in Mariupol that she was a crisis actor, that she was wearing makeup, that she wasn't pregnant, in fact. Well, I spoke to her relatives who confirmed me that she gave birth two days after the bombing, and uh, they sent me photos that, you know, so I can double check and see that it, it's actually her. Uh, what Russia is doing, you know, they are manufacturing this huge lies because their reasoning is that, you know, the bigger is the lie, the more people are likely to believe it because they would think, well, such a huge thing, it cannot be a lie. Like there should be at least some truth to it. Is that getting through at all in the Ukraine? Is that for people there or they see what they see? They can see with their eyes. Well, uh, of course, you know, Russians are trying to to reach Ukrainians with these lies, and they've been doing that since 2014. This is not something new. Russians have been targeting audiences inside Russia, in Ukraine, but also in the West with the goal to undermine uh, support for Ukraine. So what they've been doing in Ukraine, 
they've been trying, you know, to push narratives like that Ukraine is a failed state, that Ukraine is controlled by external forces, kind of trying to undermine the confidence of Ukrainians into their own government and the support of Ukrainians into their own government. So in Kherson, in southern Ukraine, well, Russians immediately when they enter there, they disconnect the population there from Ukrainian media and they start broadcasting on those uh, airwaves, uh, radio and TV, Russian state radio and TV, like Russian propaganda. And people in Kherson, from like what I'm hearing, like their main source of information about Ukraine is online media and telegram channels with the news coming from Ukrainian sources, because like what they hear on radio and on TV is Russian propaganda. They're very effective at using the Ukrainian, at using social media and cell phones and et cetera. They've used them quite adeptly, I would say. Yeah, I would say that um, especially, you know, middle-aged and young people, they are like, everyone is glued to their smartphones. And, you know, the younger people, they educate also the older ones to use mobile phones, to use smartphones, to install apps where they can follow the news. Even for the sirens, we receive like the alerts on phones. You know, there is this wailing, an app that goes like with this wailing sound of a siren. Sometimes even before you hear actually the siren outside, you hear it on your phone, like in the middle What's of the it night. Called? What's it called in, in Ukraine? What's the name of the app? It's called like Trivoha. So it's uh, um, Trivoha is... Uh, Actually, the literal translation is anxiety, but in fact, it's like an alert, an alert. <laughs> so yeah. it has like multiple meanings. So, yeah, in general, you know, Ukraine is quite a tech-savvy country. People are like used to, you know, they rely on like using smartphones, using internet. And also in Ukraine, there is a booming IT sector. And a lot of these people like some of them have joined the army, but a lot of them are contributing, you know, not fighting, but they are staying in, in Ukraine in the areas that are safe and trying what they can in order to contribute also to this resistance effort online, digital, using various tools. Right. But there are two versions of what's happening in Ukraine. What does that um, mean for divided families in the countries? Because there's lots of reports of families where People in Ukraine are hearing from family in Russia who deny that any of it is actually happening. Can you talk a little bit about that phenomena? Yes, it's quite common, actually, especially like in the first weeks of war. A lot of Ukrainians were very surprised with the fact that, you know, their friends or those who used to be their friends in Russia and relatives, they were like in complete denial of what their country was doing in Ukraine. So when they were sent like photos and videos of the bombings of Kharkiv and Mariupol, many of those people just said, well, these are all like fakes, uh, staged videos, or like later when they like were not able to, you know, <laughs> deny that it actually happened, they were saying, well, you are doing it to yourselves. These are your armed forces that are doing that. Or some of them also said, well, you deserve it because, you know, you have like there are Nazis in Ukraine. Russia has to protect itself. And like Russia was forced to uh, launch this war to protect itself from the threat coming from Ukraine. So like really, really surreal conversations. And, you know, the ties between Russia and Ukraine, they were already damaged since 2014. And a lot of people stopped uh, speaking to their friends in Russia because of like a lot of the influence of propaganda in Russia. And now the situation is just like, this is just exacerbated, of course, you know, and like now a lot of ties are being severed between relatives, also families like splitting, falling apart. 
And I, I don't know like how these ties can be rebuilt, you know, because it's increasingly clear that a lot of people in Russia actually support this war. And, you know, it's not just Putin's war. It's the war that is supported by a lot of people in Russia, whether they do not really know what is happening or if they know, but they just don't want to believe that Russia has any like responsibility or any guilt for this. Like they might actually think that Russia is doing the right thing. So it will be very difficult to rebuild these ties, uh, you know, regardless of the outcome of this war. So what is critical to get the truth of what's happening in Ukraine out there besides, you know, European, U.S. and other reporters from democratic countries writing about it? But what needs to be done to protect that information war that Ukraine is definitely winning? I mean, at least across most of the world. Well, my personal concern is, of course, that if this war goes on for a long time, the attention will inevitably wane, you know, and uh, there will be less uh, presence of international media in Ukraine and also the audience and the, the people across the world, they will somehow get used to this news coming out of Ukraine. And in the meantime, there will be other crises in the world, in other places of the globe, and the attention will switch elsewhere. Like that's, that's something that happened in, in many other parts of the world. But I think what is important is that there is still a presence of international media in Ukraine. And actually, it's very encouraging that a lot of journalists from different countries, they have been covering Ukraine since 2014. So this is not like a spot that suddenly emerged on the map, which wasn't there before. And there are a lot of like really competent reporters who know Ukraine well, who didn't just discover Ukraine a month ago. It's very important that they continue reporting. And, and those who just discovered Ukraine recently I hope, you know, they also kind of been here, got a sense of the importance of this particular war, because it's not just some sort of like a regional conflict that doesn't affect, uh, you know, other parts of the globe. Russia is a, a global nuclear power, a UN Security Council member, a country which has a lot of influence in the world. And what is doing, you know, it will reverberate in other parts of the globe. And of course, China is watching what is happening here in Ukraine and the reaction to Russia's actions. And it has in mind, uh, you know, maybe like, should it move on on Taiwan or not? What kind of consequences it might face? So uh, I think in that context, it's very important to keep the attention on what is happening here and keep the presence of the media here. Although it's very dangerous, I like, I have to admit that this war has been very, very dangerous for journalists. So in that regard, my last question, have you considered leaving the country yourself? What would go into that decision for you to do so? Well, I'm determined to stay as long as I can and as long as it is safe. Yeah. And I, I hope, I very much hope that there will be parts of the country that will be safe. You know, I'm like prepared to maybe move from a location where I'm now to another location if this one is not safe. But I really wouldn't want to leave because as a journalist, I feel it's my duty to stay in Ukraine and report from here. I also feel this is my kind of contribution to Ukraine's resistance as a Ukrainian citizen, not as a journalist, but as a citizen, because, you know, this country is dear to me. It's my home. I don't want to leave it. Although, like, I have an opportunity to go somewhere abroad, but I don't want to. I really want to be here. Yeah, I... I I want to be here. I want my child to grow here. And once this war is over, I want to contribute to help to rebuild Ukraine. 
All right. On that note, Olga, thank you so much. And please stay safe. And Thank uh, you, Cara. I hope you don't have to stay in the basement for too long. But stay <laughs> yeah. there until it's safe. Yeah. We'll be back in a minute with my conversation with Russian journalist Tikhan Zedko. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Clint Watts, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More on the information war surrounding the invasion of Ukraine and how it's affecting both Ukrainian and Russian journalists after the break. I'm Josh Klein. And I'm Elise Hugh. We host a podcast from Accenture called Built for Change. Every part of every business is being reinvented right now. That means companies are facing brand new pressures to use fast evolving technologies and address shifting consumer expectations. But with big changes come even bigger opportunities. We've talked with leaders from every corner of the business world to learn how they're harnessing change to totally reinvent their companies. And how you can do it too. Subscribe to Built for Change now so you don't miss an episode. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I think I know this connection. Look, Bath is a city in England, Sandwich is a city in England, Reading is a city in England, and I'm going to guess Derby is a city in England. I started Wordle 194 days ago, and I haven't missed a day. The New York Times Games app has all the games right there. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. I always have to get genius. I've seen you yell at it and say, that (laughs) should be a word. Totally should be a word. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. At this point, I'm probably more consistent with doing the crossword than brushing my teeth. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. When I have to look up a clue to help me, I'm learning something new. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. My next guest is Tikhan Zedko. He's the editor-in-chief of TV Rain, which is the last independent television station in Russia. Days after the invasion, Russia's media regulator blocked TV Rain's website, and they were ordered to tow the official Russian line about the war or face jail under a new law. TV Rain made the decision to stop operating, and the video of their last broadcast went viral. They played Swan Lake, and the news anchors said no war before walking off the set together. Then Tikhan left Russia. But that hasn't stopped him from doing interviews. He, along with three other Russian journalists, recently interviewed Ukrainian President Zelensky. I wanted to ask him about that interview, Russia's crackdown on independent media, and what information is actually getting through to the Russian people. Tikhon, welcome to Sway. Thank you so much for having me. So about a week after the invasion, TV Rain's site was blocked. Can you talk a little bit of how you learned that was happening and your reaction at the time? Well, I was on air and uh, I started receiving um, messages from our viewers uh, on the YouTube chat that they did not have access to our website. And uh, I asked our team whether everything was fine or not, because we were thinking that something like this could happen. 
And uh, in uh, 10 minutes, I guess, we received news from a state news agency that the regulator of media in Russia, Roskomnadzor, decided to block our website alongside with the website of radio station Echo of Moscow. There was something that we were waiting for because the situation was getting worse and worse. And finally, unfortunately, it happened. So what was your reaction? Were you surprised by what happened? I would say that I was not surprised. When the war started, I um, I realized two things. First, that we should broadcast 24 to 7. And the second, that it is the beginning of the end of TV reign. The first day of the war, all the media in Russia received the letter from Roskomnadzor that we should not spread so-called fake information about activities of Russian military in Ukraine, which means that we should not report anything but the information provided by Russian Minister of Defense. But still, we continued to work as we used to work, but we understood that, that again, this was the beginning of the end. I was more surprised that it only happened on the, I think it was the fifth day of the war, not on the second or on the third. Unfortunately, it was obvious that it was going to happen. So why did they allow you to tolerate you at all? Because most, most, at least Americans, think it's all state TV, but it isn't. There was a lot of independent sites like yourself there broadcasting. Why was that, I guess, tolerated by the government, which controls most uh, avenues of communication in the country? It's hard to understand what is going on in their heads, but I think that till uh, February 24th, they uh, continued to pretend that there still was some limited democracy in Russia. The situation for media in Russia after the beginning of the presidency of uh, Vladimir Putin has never been easy, and it was getting worse and worse every year. And two last years were catastrophic for Russian independent media because they started to use the so-called law on foreign agents. And a lot of news outlets and journalists were designated as foreign agents and our TV station, for example, as well. But still, we were able to to broadcast. And uh, for example, our TV station was very active on YouTube and we had something like 16 million uh, viewers every month. And these first days of war, we every day we had 25 million views. Our audience was huge. But with the beginning of the war, I think that Russian government and uh, Russian president Vladimir Putin decided that these games of democracy are over and that it's a new page of Russian history. And uh, when you start such war, it's impossible to have independent media in your country when you are bombing cities with uh, civilians. So you had gotten through on YouTube with 25 million. This was a way you were already broadcasting as a business, correct? Yes, that's correct. So uh, our TV station was founded in 2010. But last year's, it was the time of YouTube in Russia when politics and news came to Russian YouTube and politician shows and interviews got tens of millions of views. And uh, two years ago, we decided to be active there as well. Right now, Facebook is blocked, uh, Twitter is blocked, Instagram is blocked. For some reason, I don't know why, YouTube is not blocked yet. Uh, Maybe the reason is that a lot of people who are not 
interested in politics, they are using YouTube to watch movies with their kids, to watch uh, cartoons, etc., etc. And maybe Kremlin just doesn't want to make them angry. Right. So you said it was the end of TV reign. Yes. And now I am with my wife, who used to be our news director at TV Rain. We launch our own YouTube channel to do live streams and to do interviews. But TV Rain does not exist anymore. After our website was blocked, we continued to operate for a few more days. But then a new law was adopted in Russia. So it's actually impossible to say anything. We had a choice whether we would become the part of press office of Russian Ministry of Defense or we would continue doing what we've been doing over the last 12 years and face up to 15 years in jail. So we we decided that we should stop operating. A lot of our journalists left the country and we are planning to relaunch something somewhere. But we think that it's better for us and our families and it's better for our audience if we are free than when we are in jail. Okay. So when you talked about Putin's regime cracking down on journalists, when did it really start to feel different? You said every year it got worse. I think uh, it started to change uh, very fast two years ago or a year and a half. The first um, important moment was when Vladimir Putin uh, changed the constitution and allowed himself to stay in power up to 2036. The second thing, very important, were protests in Belarus, which showed to Vladimir Putin that even in such strong authoritarian state as Belarus, hundreds of thousands of people would go out in the streets and protesting the frauds on the elections. The third thing is the attempt to kill Alexei Navalny, the leader of Russian opposition. He survived and he returned to Moscow and he was arrested. And a lot of people went out to the streets to support him. And a lot of people were arrested. Then they started to use this so-called foreign agent law and designate journalists as foreign agents, etc., etc. But also, I think, the very important thing is coronavirus. Vladimir Putin is very paranoid about coronavirus. If you look at how he meets with his, uh, for example, Minister of Foreign Affairs and Minister of Defense, you would see that there is a huge table between them. Yes, we noticed. We made memes just to fight it, you know. (laughs) We're totally useless, but go ahead. So I think coronavirus changed a lot. I think he started to get less real information than he used to get. And uh, that's how he he changed. And so he became more paranoid is essentially what you're saying. Yes, yes, that's what I'm saying, yeah. With less information and more need to hold on to power more viciously. Um, you were one of four Russian journalists to recently interview Ukrainian President Zelensky. Talk to us about how the interview came about well, I was invited to to take a part in it. As long as I understand, the idea was to talk to the Russian audience, and I think it's an important thing. What struck you most about what he said and what he was trying to say to the Russian people? Well, it was a very tough conversation because it doesn't make you feel optimistic. 
for example, about the relations between Russians and Ukrainians. And uh, Vladimir Zelensky, he told us that, guys, we all understand that me and you, there is no way we could be friends with you, meaning our generations. Uh, maybe our grandchildren will have the opportunity to talk normally. But what, what is more important were words about what is uh, happening now in Ukraine, in Mariupol, in uh, eastern Ukraine. What is happening with the kids? What is happening with, uh, with the families? It's just so devastating. It's so terrible. So the Kremlin responded to the Zelensky interview by telling outlets involved not to publish the interview. How did you respond? Because they said they were launching an inquiry into the reporters involved. Well, I think it was uh, it was made to threaten the uh, the remaining media in Russia not to quote Vladimir Zelensky, and uh, they succeeded because not a lot of uh, media outlets quoted him. As for me and other journalists who participated in this interview, it's a choice uh, for us. On the one hand, we could obey this stupid, weird uh, demand, or we could say to us and to our viewers that it is absurd. They told not to publish this interview before this interview was even published. I mean, they didn't know what, what's in it. They didn't know whether there is something which uh, breaking the law. It is a pure censorship. And uh, what I've been doing over 18 years of my career as a journalist, I was trying to be honest with my audience and with myself. So I did not even think about how to react to this demand. Of course, I just did not care about it. Yeah, but you're still a Russian citizen and your family are still Russian citizens. Yes, of course. Sure. Do you feel that there is any threat or that you can't go back? I think I cannot go back now, unfortunately. And it makes me feel bad. It makes me feel sad because I have all my life there. I have a lot of friends. I have my apartment there. I don't know my car. I mean, all my all my clothes and stuff. And all, all my life is there. And I consider myself as a, as a patriot. And uh, I feel humiliated because I'm not a criminal. I did nothing wrong to be forced to leave the country. But that are the circumstances in which we unfortunately have to live now. Yeah. What kind of response has the interview gotten inside of Russia? Has it gotten through? Yes, I saw a lot of feedback. A lot of people posted it on the social media, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Look, it's it's a lot of journalists always dream to make interviews with uh, people who decide, with the presidents and prime ministers, and it is always the privilege. And uh, when you do such interview you always get a lot of quotes in different media, et cetera, et cetera. And now it is like we did something wrong, like we broke the law or something. And uh, I see that professional media, which have been operating in Russia over the years, they just pretend like nothing happened. They just don't quote it. That's something, something crazy. But people are accessing the journalism. How are they doing that? Do you think VPN use in the country has skyrocketed? Is independent reporting getting through anyway? Yes, independent journalism um, gets there. 
but it's obvious that if you compare what uh, was uh, happening before the beginning of the war and what is happening now, these are two different stories. I mean, the level of access to the independent media is different. For example, I, I've never been using VPN while I was living in Russia. And I think that a lot of people, they are just too lazy to download a VPN and to use it. So, so the number of those who get access to the independent media has gotten smaller. Yeah. Is it mostly state-controlled media that people are consuming in Russia right now? Uh, I think yes. I don't have any, any numbers. I know that the request to the independent information is huge. I know it because I know the how many viewers TV Rain used to have. But also I understand that there is places in Russia where people only have access to the state TV and uh, they are turning it on only because they they are used to. And when they have only one source of information, by the end of the day, they start to trust it. Do you have a sense of whether people in Russia believe this propaganda that's going on? And I'm, it is propaganda, that's all it is. Or do they really know what's going on? Because Russia has a history of this with, you know, uh, things that were distributed, journals and articles physically for decades. So do you think they have a sense of what's going on or do they believe this propaganda? I think there are several Russias in Russia. For example, if we are speaking about the war, there is a group which does not support the war. There is a group which just does not care. There is a group which actually believes in what Russian propaganda is saying. And also there is a big group which which is in denial because it's hard for them to admit that their country, our country, my country, is doing some bad things. So answering your question, I think that some people, they do actually trust and believe in propaganda. And some people choose to believe in propaganda because it's easier. Because uh, otherwise, they would have to ask tough questions and ask these questions to themselves. Yeah. But I mean, what is the version of it? Is it Samizdat, as I recall, the, that when they yes, it was sort of the Samizdat. clandestine yeah. literature that was banned by the state when it was a communist country? Is What is what is the version of that right now? Uh, I think now it's not time of Samizdat yet, but I think uh, VPN services are something like Samizdat and uh, Telegram and YouTube is something like Samizdat. But I think that the time of new Samizdat, unfortunately, will come soon. And it will be, again, our goal, the goal of independent journalists, to make this Samizdat work, to break this digital iron curtain which could happen in Russia and to get to as many people as it possible. So is there any way to combat this disinformation? Just to spread real information. That's it. Right. And I've been always for this idea. I mean, when different governments before the war uh, were banning, for example, RT. Yeah, the Russian state media. I thought that it was a mistake because I think the only way to combat disinformation is to make your information better. Yeah, but you've called it brainwashing. The people in Russia are brainwashed. Do you think that? 
a lot of people are brainwashed, uh, of course, because they look. I I understand that white is white and black is black. Even if I call it uh, green, it is still white. But unfortunately, a lot of people they turn on the state TV and they hear and see that white is red, or maybe a little green, and maybe a little yellow. And then we see that it's not a joke at all. That a lot of people, for example, they watch the state TV, all this information about how U.S. wants to to defeat Russia and how neo-Nazis are in Kiev and how they hate all all the Russians, etc., etc. And uh, a lot of people, they are brainwashed and they decided not to choose how to live in their country because they are being told uh, on the TV that everyone is lying, uh, you cannot change anything, democracy is broken, uh, look at what is happening in the West, look at how uh, Europe is collapsing, Biden is old and he's going to die and he's out of his mind, etc., etc. And so people, they just don't have a normal view of what is happening in the world. And what is interesting, they have two different realities. The first reality is uh, the reality that they see while they are watching the TV. The second reality is the reality that they see when they open the door and go to the streets, but they have the explanations of this bad reality that they see on the streets. Because if the roads are broken, this is because of NATO wants to defeat Russia, etc., etc. Where do you think the pressure on Putin will come from the inside or the outside? Or will none of it work? You're, you're sort of saying the Russian people are not paying attention to this in the way they need to, or enough of them aren't. Is there a place to apply pressure besides sanctions? Uh, I think it's really impossible to predict anything. One month ago, before February 24th, we lived in a completely different world. This world does not exist anymore. And every new day brings us some crazy news which were not possible a month ago. As for the sanctions, I think we should wait and see. We have the example of Iran, where sanctions actually did not change anything. But we don't know how it will work out in Russia. All the serious uh, experts, they are saying that these sanctions are really serious for Russian economy, but we don't know how it will work out. As for situation inside the country, I think that Russian propaganda will now work more and more and will explain to the people that their economical problems, they are not because of the war which was started by the Russian president, but these problems are because of the West which wants to destroy great Russia. And I think that at least at the beginning, it will work and propaganda will work. But let's see what will happen a few months later. Yeah. So I have a last question. Um, How worried about you about your own safety and your career as a journalist going forward? Well, I think my own safety is okay. I don't really think about it. As for my career, I... uh, would really love to continue my career in Russia as an independent journalist, but it's not possible now, unfortunately. 
I will continue my career as a journalist somewhere else. But I really hope that one day, rather sooner than later, I will get back to Russia and I will continue working as an independent journalist there at my home. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Raza, Blake Nishik, Daphne Chen, Caitlin O'Keefe, and Wyatt Orm. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Sonia Herrero and Carol Saburo, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair, Michelle Harris, and Mary Marge Locker. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lynn, and Christina Samuluski. The senior editor of Sway is Naima Raza. And the executive producer of New York Times Opinion Audio is Irene Noguchi. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcast. So follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you, along with an app for our Times that's just called Anxiety, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said. Done.